Let me begin the message today um, with a true story. And uh, the true story comes from about 15 years ago. I used to have a uh, public speaking job where I would work for this organization called Aim for Success, and they would send me all across the country each day to different schools uh, to talk to teenagers about at-risk behaviors like drugs and alcohol and abstinence. One time I was doing a program on abstinence for a big group of ninth graders, and there was about 1,000 kids. And as they were dismissed, uh, most of the kids filed out into the hallway, except for this one ninth grade girl who kind of lingered behind. And uh, she lingered behind till most of them were gone and came up to me in sort of a private one-on-one conversation and said, you know, Dave, that part in the program uh, where you said that we all get to give away the gift of our virginity, uh, I don't have that gift anymore. Uh, But it's not because I gave it away. It's because someone took it from me. And at that point, she began to cry. And she explained that the person who uh, repeatedly assaulted her was a member of her own family, her uncle. And though she had told those who were in charge of her about this, they did not do anything about it. And so the behavior continued for quite some time. The uncle apparently was a respected member of their community and even a respected member of their church. And so uh, those who knew about this behavior sought to sweep it under the rug. Uh, What do we do when uh, sexual abuse comes into the family? What do we do if sexual abuse were to even come into the church? The topic today is a sobering one. Unfortunately, that's a question that is not always answered by the people of God very well. The numbers on this are actually quite disturbing. One out of five girls and one out of 20 boys will be a victim of sexual abuse. The Me Too movement certainly has not got everything right, but it is pushing our society and the church quite rightly to look at this and seek a more biblical framework for dealing with this issue. The sexual abuse cover-ups in the Roman Catholic community is well known. Perhaps you saw the documentary a couple of years ago, Spotlight. It's a true story about these journalists who uncovered a major cover-up of sexual abuse in the Roman Catholic Church, and it was really quite a mess. But the situation for us Protestants are not much better. This past year, maybe you saw the articles in the Houston Chronicle that related a series of incidences of sexual abuse in the Southern Baptist Convention. The stories included there were heartbreaking. They brought to light over 380 different Southern Baptist churches who had either leaders or volunteers accused of sexual abuse or misconduct, impacting over 700 victims and survivors. Predators of all kinds seek the warm embrace of the church, and oftentimes the target is young children. Perhaps you're here this morning and you are a survivor of sexual abuse. You know about this pain all too well in a very personal way. This might have occurred in what was supposed to be the safest and warmest and most loving place on earth, in your family, or in the community of faith. And so the question on the table this morning is a sober one. We want to find out If such a thing were to happen and all of our safeguards fail, what is the appropriate biblical response? And the answer to that question is in Genesis 34. If you want to turn there with me, it is, let me warn you, one of the most outrageous stories in the Bible. 
Brace yourselves. It is deeply disturbing. The outline is in your bulletin. I would encourage you to pull that out and follow along with me as it is the story of Dinah, the only daughter of Jacob, and it has three movements. We will see, number one, the abuse, number two, the neglect, and number three, the thirst for revenge. The abuse, the neglect, and the thirst for revenge. That will be our outline for the story, and then after that, we will draw out what I believe are the timeless points of application that will reach to us across 3,500 years of history and serve to be amazingly just as relevant today as they were back then. We're going to begin by looking at the context, though, because our passage today takes place after Jacob had reconciled with Esau. If you remember that, that's where we were last week. So we'll pick it up in chapter 33 with verse 18 first. Um, The text says this in verse 18, after Jacob came from Padam Aram, he arrived safely at the city of Shechem in Canaan and camped within sight of the city. For a hundred pieces of silver, he bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, the plot of ground where he pitched his tent. Question, where is Jacob? Answer, he's in Shechem. Although God had told him to return to the place of his vow, Bethel, his disobedience here is about to lead him into a big problem. The scene has been foreshadowed several times in the book of Genesis. We may remember Lot who pitched his tents outside of the city of Sodom, another city full of immorality. We remember Abraham placing his family in harm's way with Pharaoh, telling him that Sarah was his sister. We remember Jacob's father Isaac also doing the same thing and lying about his wife, Rebecca, saying that she too was his sister. This is a foolish decision, again, flirting with evil, and Jacob has not learned the lesson that he got from his father. Instead, he's exposing members of his family, again, to danger, but this time it's not his wife, it is his daughter. Dinah, verse 1. Now, Dinah, the daughter Leah had borne to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the land. Dinah, as she explores her new pagan community, is likely not fully aware of the danger that she is in, but Jacob should have known better. There are some environments that aren't going to lead your family to any place good because of what happens there being so inappropriate, and we as husbands and fathers are to guard our families and hearts from these things. For this reason, for Jacob's move here, we're not sure exactly why it happened. Perhaps it was financial, or maybe there was some other reason. It's unclear, but the context is important because there is a spiritual defilement that happens long before the physical defilement occurs. This is why John tells us in 1 John chapter 2, do not love the world or anything in the world. Instead of protecting his family, Jacob, pursuing worldliness, has placed his daughter in harm's way and exposes her to the worst kind of abuse. Verse 2. When Shechem, son of Hamor the Hivite, the ruler of that area, saw her, he took her and raped her. Verse 2 is just brutal. The text is clear. He has sexual relations with her, but it is not consensual. It is done by force. The Hebrew word is ana. It means to oppress, to hurt, or to humiliate. The violation is referred to later in the chapter in verses 5, 13, and 27 as defilement. Dinah has been defiled. It's the same word used in Psalm 79 to describe the defilement of the temple. Dinah's body, like a temple, like the Holy of Holies itself, has been desecrated by a lustful and evil man. 
The man's name is Shechem. He's a powerful and wealthy leader in his community. The dad has named the city after him. And like so many who think they are above the law, he feels he can do as he pleases. And then we're about to read in the next verse something so strange to our ears. It sounds so contrary to his behavior just one verse ago. But verse 3 says this, His heart was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. Now, some people see a true love and affection in Shechem for Dinah. They argue that he has had a change of heart. I seriously doubt this. The context of the story seems more to me that he is like a child who has gotten caught, who is now turning on the charm. He comes, as many abusers do, as a kind of Jekyll and Hyde. One minute he's brutal and evil, the next he is all sugar and spice. Uh, Recently, I attended a seminar with Pastor Bob on abuse, and the presenter gave us this chart to consider, and, and she said that the cycle of abuse is actually quite predictable. You can see there's this natural progression that occurs in an abusive relationship. There's the yellow stage, building up, the abu- building up to the abuse. That's called the tension-building stage. That leads to the red stage, which is the actual abuse. They call it the acute explosion. And then that is always directly followed by the green stage, or what's called the honeymoon phase. But don't be fooled by this as genuine repentance. This stage is just as self-serving as the other stages, It's simply there to protect the perpetrator from the consequences of his abuse. This is how abuse operates today and back then. It's not new. This story happened thousands of years ago. So let me say this. Ladies, a man can be strongly attracted to you and speak kindly to you, and it have nothing to do with love. Men, a woman can be attracted to you and speak kindly to you, and it could have nothing to do with love. Shechem is an abuser, and next we see Shechem's plan is to get his dad to bail him out, verse 4. And Shechem said to his father, Hamor, get me this girl as my wife. The rapist wants to marry his victim. But first, the news of the assault comes to Jacob. Think about that. How would you respond as a parent at the moment you heard about this having happened to your daughter? Verse 5. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob kept silent until they came in. Pause here for a moment with me. Not only did Jacob set his family on a trajectory for tragedy, but now when the tragedy occurs, he is not to be bothered with it. He is silent. Do not be tempted to think that he is silent on purpose because he's thinking about what is the right thing to do or that he's silent because he's angry, stewing about what has happened here. All the commentators agree that his behavior here and throughout the chapter instead points to a fact that this this is an unbelievable abdication on Jacob's part. His reaction is not proportional to what has occurred. Dr. Abraham Caravilla says, quote, Jacob has been reduced to passivity in a helpless or negligent coma. Why? Why? The answer to that question, I think, is complex. First, one reason might have to do with favoritism. You may remember we talked about how this can cause lots of problems in the family last week. 
Here we are again in the next generation, and it's a long story. I don't have time to tell it all, but Jacob actually had two wives, Rachel and Leah. Now, it's never a good idea to have more than one spouse, but here we see throughout this story that Jacob has always favored Rachel and her children over Leah and her children. And we wonder as we read, if Dinah had been the daughter of his beloved Rachel and not Leah, would he have had a different response? My opinion is the answer is yes. At least one reason for his silence is because this is the lesser loved side of the family. He is not willing to go to bat for her when Shechem, a prince, and his father Hamor, powerfully and politically connected people, are involved. He kept silent. Which leads us to movement two, the neglect. Brothers and sisters, here we see what I believe is the number one temptation for fathers and husbands coming into the full light, the sin of passivity. A number of years ago, I read a thought-provoking book by Christian psychologist Dr. Larry Crabb called The Silence of Adam. And in that book, he asked a very thought-provoking question that I have never forgotten. He said, where was Adam when Eve was talking to the serpent back in Genesis chapter 3? Let me remind you of the story. It says this, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. So where was Adam when this occurred? It says he was right there with her. A lot of people think of the woman over there off by herself entertaining this temptation with the enemy while her husband is off somewhere else out of sight doing what he needed to do. But that is actually not how this sin took place. It says Adam was right there with her. He was watching this whole thing transpire. And when the woman had been thoroughly deceived and seduced, he thought, well, let's see what happens to her. And let it happen. The thing that jumps out of this passage is that rather than doing what God had designed the husband and father to do, which is to lead and to initiate and to protect and to defend. Adam's doing nothing. He is passive. He's just standing there. He didn't do anything. And that's the problem. That's the problem. That's the problem. And that's the problem we see with men in homes all across America, isn't it? Rather than men stepping up and doing something, we're just standing there. Rather than us being involved the way we should be with our families and our wives and children, we're not doing anything. Rather than leading our home spiritually, we're being passive. And it's often not that we're doing anything necessarily wrong. It's just that we're just standing there. And there's this passivity that you need to know just kind of sweeps over men. Men have this natural tendency to wait in regards to significant social and spiritual and domestic responsibilities. They can't find whatever it is within, the energy to move forward and seize the moment, even in the most critical of settings like here. Now, why is that? Well, Crabb says in his book, the reason is this. Every man knows all too well that this world is dangerous. He knows the risk of sticking his neck out, whether it be relationship or work. Many men are convinced that the confusion of relationships and the uncertainty of the future can destroy them. So they remain silent. But when men are silent, we deny our true calling. As men, we deny our faith. When I am silent in the face of such evil, I bear witness to my belief that the chaos and the evil out there is more powerful than the God I trust in. 
the lesson here for us is clear. Passivity in the face of evil only produces more evil. Let me put that on the screen. Passivity in the face of evil only produces more evil. This is the problem with the silence culture around the issue we're talking about here. Some of us, we just don't like to talk about this topic that we're talking about today. It's uncomfortable. But when we refuse to talk about these things, when we squirm about it, we are part of the silence culture that makes this problem worse. If we say, well, let's not just talk about this, and I, you know, I don't want, this is kind of gross, and I don't really want to think about this, that's the silence culture that keeps the church from being the place it needs to be. Passivity in the face of evil will only produce more evil. And I'll say more about that later. Next here in the text, we have to remember that there is a negotiation that must take place. The plan on the table, if you'll recall, is for Dinah to marry Shechem. But before that can happen, some negotiations are necessary. And and with Jacob refusing to engage... Shechem's father, Hamor the king, takes control of the whole situation. He's given the platform when it should have been Jacob calling the shots. He's speaking here to Jacob's sons. Look at verse 8. But Hamor said to them, My son Shechem has his heart set on your daughter. Please give her to him as his wife. Intermarry with us. Give us your daughters and take our daughters for yourselves. You can settle among us. The land is open to you. Live in it, trade in it, and acquire property in it. What's missing from this negotiation? There is no apology here. There is no repentance. There is no remorse. Dinah has been dehumanized, treated like a sexual object, and in this whole chapter, she is utterly voiceless. They treat her like chattel to be haggled over. And so completely lost on this side of the negotiation is the assault of a young woman. Hamor ignores the crime and spins it into an opportunity for financial growth. Let's take our two large families and make them one. A win-win, according to Hamor. And then later, after terms have been agreed to, he brings a slightly different sales pitch to his own people. To them, the Canaanites, he says this in verse 21. These men are friendly toward us, they said. Let them live in our land and trade in it. The land has been plenty of room for them. We can marry their daughters and they can marry ours. Uh, But the men will agree to live with us as one people only on the condition that our males be circumcised as they themselves are. Moving on to verse 23. Won't their livestock, their property, and all their other animals become ours? So let us agree to their terms and they will settle among us. Now you should know that I think Hamor is a bit of a snake oil salesman. On the one hand, he's, uh, he's, he's saying to his own people one thing. On the other hand, he's saying to, to Jacob's people a different thing. He's slimy and deceptive. Uh, when he's talking to the sons of Jacob, he says, all we have will be yours. But then when he's talking to his own people, he says, all they have will be ours. And his people, of course, agree. Now, in the meantime, what has been going on with the sons of Jacob? Verse 7. Meanwhile, Jacob's sons had come in from the fields. As soon as they heard what had happened, they were shocked and furious because Shechem had done an outrageous thing in Israel by sleeping with Jacob's daughter, a thing that should not be done. Now, aren't you glad for their anger? I am. Finally, somebody's mad about this. Righteous anger, church, can be an absolutely beautiful thing. 
We said in an earlier message about anger that even our God is angry from time to time. Now, I don't want to go on a tangent too far here, but it is very important that we uphold the doctrine of God's wrath. We are thankful for God's wrath because it means he cares and that justice will be served in the end. That is actually what the cross is all about. Fleming Rutledge argues this in her book, The Crucifixion. She says, the biblical message is that the outrage is first of all in the heart of God. The cross says that no sin is incidental to our God. If we think of Christian theology and ethics purely in forms of forgiveness, we will have neglected a central aspect of God's own character and will be in no position to understand the cross in its fullest dimension. On the one hand, the boys are right. This thing should not have been done. They display the anger that was lacking in their father. But... But but their anger, unfortunately, is an immature anger, which leads us to movement three, the thirst for revenge. See, if a sin is not properly handled appropriately and firmly, it only leads to greater problems. In fact, the outline on the screen here can become a cycle, a cycle that lasts for generations if it is not handled appropriately. This is where we are headed in the story. Drop down to verse 13. Because their sister Dinah had been defiled, Jacob's sons replied deceitfully as they spoke to Shechem and his father Hamor. They said to them, we will enter into an agreement with you on one condition only, that you become like us by circumcising all your males. Then we will give you our daughters and and take your daughters for ourselves." The plan is to require the men of this city to be circumcised. Yes, that kind of circumcision. This is not metaphorical. This is surgery. There will be cutting and blood and pain and several days where movement will be very difficult. And then after that, they will be in a no position to defend themselves. This is when the brothers will take advantage of their incapacitation. Notice the word deceitfully. Where did they learn about deception? Answer. The arch deceiver himself, their father, Jacob. The boys have learned from their father and their grandfather how to run a good con, how to deceive people. But Hamor and Shechem do not suspect anything. Look at verse 24. All the men who went out of the city gate agreed with Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male in the city was circumcised. The plan is all set. The stage is ready. And then at just the right time, The boys lift the curtain. 25. Three days later, while all of them were still in pain, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and attacked the unsuspecting city, killing every male. Here, Dinah's full brothers, Simeon and Levi, go on a rampage. They do not just kill Shechem, who deserve death under the laws of the land, and they do not just kill Shechem's father, Hamor. It says they kill every single man. In other words, they kill men who are in the prime of their lives. They kill grandpas who can't barely walk or see anymore. They kill young men whose lives have not yet been lived. 
Let's continue. Verse 26. They put Hamor and his son Shechem to the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and left. So Dinah was still being held hostage inside of Shechem's house this whole time. And the boys went on a rescue mission. And then the rest of the brothers join in the story here. Verse 27. It says, The sons of Jacob came upon the dead bodies and and looted the city where their sister had been defiled. They seized their flocks and herds and donkeys and everything else of theirs in the city and out in the fields. They carried off all their wealth and all their women and children, taking as plunder everything in the houses. Wow. Have you ever heard this story before? Some of you, your parents used to read you Bible stories at night when you used to go to bed. They skipped this one, didn't they? This story is, is really violent, really grotesque, really brutal. See, Shechem assaulted Dinah, and then the sons of Jacob destroy an entire city. They repay one sin with a thousand sins. Their pillaging is so complete, the text says they even took the relatively worthless household goods. They kill all the men, steal the women, empty the cupboards. The Shechemites are exterminated. They are no more. Brothers and sisters, when we are deeply wounded by the worst kind of sins, even the sin of sexual abuse. You must guard your heart lest that sin take root and metastasize into a thousand new sins. There is a famous quote that says, be careful lest in fighting the dragon, you become the dragon. This is exactly what happens here. The victims become the abusers. As is so often the case, this is why Moses comes with the law and says, no, 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 an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, not a thousand eyes for one eye. You must prevent excessive revenge. Justice should be carefully measured out. Revenge should never be haphazardly meted out. The son's instinct for justice was correct, but their methods were ruthless and excessive. One of the smartest commentators on Genesis, Derek Kidner, says it well. Look carefully at this quote. Jacob and his sons, the appeaser and the avengers, swayed respectively by fear and fury, were perhaps equidistant from true justice. They exemplify two perennial but sterile reactions to evil. Finally, in verse 30, for the first time in this whole chapter, Jacob speaks. Here's what it says. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me obnoxious to the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the people living in this land. We are few in number, and if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. And they say, should he have treated our sister like a prostitute? And that's where chapter 34 ends, with a question and no answer. It reminds me of how the book of Jonah ends, just with a question, no answer. There are no heroes here. Notice Jacob's concern in the end is still not about Dinah. It's not even about God's holiness. Rather, it is about his own fear, ironically, that he and his family will be destroyed when he himself has already started that destruction by his own passivity, indifference, and disobedience. Jacob leaves us shaking our heads. It is no wonder we see that the author of Genesis uses his old name, Jacob, to describe this narrative rather than his new name, Israel. This is the old Jacob back again. 
Nothing really good about this passage at all. In fact, this is one of the only chapters in the book of Genesis where God is never mentioned one time. So what lessons can we draw from this brutal story? As I have studied and reflected on this, here's what I believe are three timeless principles that we can draw. The first is for godly leaders. Number one, godly leaders must swiftly confront sexual abuse. Godly leaders must swiftly confront sexual abuse. If Jacob had swiftly confronted the sexual sin forced on his daughter, this story would have turned out very differently. We must learn from his negative example. Godly leaders must swiftly confront sexual abuse. Why? First, let me give you two reasons. First, because indifferent leaders inflame the zealous and immature, leading to more sin. Secondly, godly leaders must swiftly confront sexual abuse because unrighteous leaders profane our faith before a watching world. Think of this story. Are the captive widows of this city going to be more likely to worship Yahweh after what has occurred here? Are they going to share with the neighboring nations how Israel is a light to all peoples? Jacob is right in one thing. They are now a foul-smelling, odious family. God's beauty and glory are profaned before the world because of his poor leadership. If sexual sin is not handled by the mature and godly, you can be sure that God's name will be dragged through the mud. The fact that Spotlight won the Academy Award two years ago causes us, on the one hand, to cheer because these brave journalists finally exposed a major problem, but it also causes us to weep because God's name is profaned before the world. This is why we have such strict background checks to work with children and youth in our church. We must swiftly confront sexual abuse, and it's not easy, and it's not popular to do so. Some people are hesitant to deal with this issue, perhaps sometimes to protect the institution or to, to, to do the greater good. But if so, that's such folly, because that's not going to protect anything. Instead, it's going to lead to the absolute ruination of that institution. It will fracture from the inside out. People are reluctant to deal with sexual abuse sometimes because they feel the weight of their own sexual sins, whether it's in reality or fantasy, and they see someone else's sexual sins get exposed, and they think, well, I certainly wouldn't want to have my sins exposed like that. But this is so important, and I need you to listen to this. There is a big difference between sexual immorality and sexual criminality. Both are sin. Both have to be dealt with. One calls for taking proper action, but the other takes calls for taking proper action and calling the police. They are not the same. They must be rooted out. This is why Ephesians chapter 5 says, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, rather expose them. Godly leaders must swiftly confront sexual abuse. Lesson number two. Perhaps you're here today and you have fallen into the area of sexual sin yourself. I would encourage you in the strongest possible terms to take responsibility for your sexual misconduct. You may need help. You, 
you may need to commit to a longer work of healing. And while this is a delicate matter that should be handled very carefully and perhaps with a third party, nonetheless, you are called to make an attempt to make things right, both with God and with the person you have wronged. The path forward for you is clear but difficult. It is a path of humility and confession and possibly accepting consequences for your actions, but it is honoring to the Lord. Matthew 5 is clear. If you're coming to the altar to bring your gift and there remember someone has something against you, leave your gift in front of the altar. First go and make it right with that other person. Confessing such a sin might be the hardest thing you ever do in your whole life, but that is the path toward your own healing and redemption. Proverbs chapter 28 is clear. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Let me put that on the screen. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. I want you to know something. If this is you, your behavior was wrong, yes, but God's mercy and grace and love can still be extended to you but you must humble yourself before the mighty hand of God. Third, perhaps you're here today and you are one of those who has suffered. You know the pain and evil of what I'm talking about today all too well. In that situation I told you about earlier, after I listened to that young woman explain her story, I said, allow me to say a few things to you. Number one, that was not your fault. There's nothing you could ever do or ever have done that would ever make that your fault. And if that's you here today, you need to hear those words too. That was not your fault. That was not your fault. There is a guilt and a shame that victims sometimes bear that is completely inappropriate. That is not your fault. I said, number two, that gift of your virginity that everyone gets to give away, that's not something that can ever be taken away. That's a gift that only you give away when you choose for the very first time. You still have your gift. And I said, third, I need you to walk with me down the hallway. We're going to talk to the school counselor who's going to call the police. At that point, she begged me not to do that. But I learned that when kids would come up to me, the very fact that they were disclosing such a secret in their life is a cry for help. And so together, we took that walk down the hall, and the police were called. As the matter was being investigated, she simply said, Dave, thank you. No one has ever helped me with this. If that's you, if you are a victim of sexual abuse, you might think perhaps no one knows your pain and no one has ever seen what has occurred with you, but that is not true. God saw. And the step for you is a difficult choice as well, and it's this. You need to trust in God to bring about justice. He promises us we live in a moral universe And though justice might not be wrapped up perfectly in this life, what the Bible promises from Genesis to Revelation is that there will be justice. God says you can count on that. In fact, in Romans chapter 12, the Lord says this, never take your own revenge, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. We can trust our hurt in his hands. And if you want healing in your life, you must trust him and not allow that bitterness to take root for you either. There's a saying that says, hurt people, hurt people. And you don't want to be a part of that cycle. You want to break that cycle and leave room for the wrath of God. The only way to short cycle this 
Short circuit, this cycle of abuse is right here. You leave it in God's hands. And when God says, I will repay, that not only means he will bring about justice on your behalf, that means I will repay you for your pain. That is the message of the cross. That is the message of the empty tomb. And one day that will be the message we all hear in the eastern sky. Our God will make it right. We can trust him. Let me encourage you, though this passage is so difficult, our God says, I can heal the brokenhearted. I can bind up their wounds. Though this is so dark, and we see the worst side of humanity here. We see lust, abuse. We see passivity, violence, revenge. We see bad fatherhood on both sides. Uh, Both Jacob and Hamor had taught their sons to serve their passions rather than rule their passions. And we see the utter moral decline in the family. When humanity is at our worst, this is where our God is actually at his best. As he steps in, unlike the passive leadership of Jacob or the passive leadership like Adam, the second Adam, when faced with the responsibility to stand for humanity and stand for women who have been abused, the Lord Jesus Christ stepped in and stepped up for his people, and he did not remain silent. He said, I will do something about this problem at great personal cost to myself. That is what the cross is all about. Diane Langberg, a leading expert on healing and trauma from sexual abuse, writes this, the crucified is the one who has been most traumatized. He has borne the abused and trafficked children. He was wounded for the sins of those who perpetrated such horrors. He has carried the griefs and sorrows of the multitudes who have suffered. He has borne our selfishness and our pride. He has been in the darkness. He has known the loss of all things. He has been abandoned by his father. He has been to hell. There is no tragedy or any part of any tragedy that he has not known and carried. He has done this, so none of us need to face tragedy alone because he has been there before us and he will go with us. In other words, the cross is where we find that God will not only deal with every sin, but the cross is also where we find that our God identifies with the worst possible pain. And he invites us to come, not just for healing, but to come to get to know the healer. Recently, I read an article in Christianity Today entitled, God's Answer to the Me Too Movement, written by Jen Mitchell. It was an outstanding article. I commend it to you. But I just want to read you one quote as we close. And and as I read, let me invite the musicians forward and those who are serving communion today forward at this time as well. So you can come. She writes this in the article. Listen carefully. It says, as Christians contending with this issue, we must keep believing an old, old story that the sinless God committed himself freely into the hands of evildoers to repair the wounds of sin. God could not have loved the perpetrator if he had only enacted justice. He could not have loved the victim if he had only loved mercy. This divine dilemma, as church father Athanasius described it, was solved only by God pitying our race enough to clothe himself with flesh, enter the world, and die a brutal death. On the cross, God radically identifies with victim and perpetrator, his arms outstretched in both anger and absolution. In other words, the cross is where our God says back to us, me too. 
Me too. Me too. Can we pray? Oh, Heavenly Father, as we approach the table, this is a difficult topic today, a passage that is full of the worst sins. I pray, Father, for my brothers and sisters for whom this has raised painful memories and opened up wounds. I pray for your divine, supernatural, spiritual comfort and healing now on all of those who've been victimized. I pray for them now. I pray that your word would be true for them. I pray that they would understand the good news that you bring to the oppressed. You came to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release the prisoners, to provide for those who mourn, to bring beauty from ashes and the oil of joy for mourning and the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. I thank you that we can find this healing balm in Gilead, this hope through our Lord Jesus Christ, our Redeemer and our Savior. As we approach the table this morning, may we remember and reflect on his profound suffering on our behalf. It's in Christ's name and for his reputation we all pray. Amen.